this week on the Back Table Podcast. Yeah, and that's one of the um, – I think that's why people like Parto, and I didn't say this. But I, I kind of alluded to it. That's why I think people like Parto is they don't have to worry about that. They just you know put the damn catheter up there and then start injecting gel foam. Um, and you don't have to worry about uh, – you know that you're going to plug those up with those little bits of gel foam so you don't really give a rip. Um, whereas if you're injecting sclerosin, it's much more important that you define those, that you coil those off so you know exactly where all that sclerosin is going. Um, and uh, – oh, and I've had long discussions with um, with Saher about you know BRTO uh, versus Parto, and he his response is this Parto is it's not elegant. It's just not elegant. <laughs> that's, I, I totally agree with that. It's just not an elegant approach to it. I mean, you're just like I'm surprised that someone in the United States didn't come up with Parto because that's such an American way to do it. Right. Like just <laughs> and just like jam a bunch of shit in there. Um, and just like, oh, there, it's shut down, nailed it, and like, I'm going on. <laughs> um, but the BRTO requires like some degree of, you know, you really have to define Finesse. exactly what's right. going on. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's much more technical. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things IR. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, the Back Table app, or Spotify. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Luke Wilkins from the University of Virginia. Luke, welcome and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, before we get into our topic, I just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. Um, RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, providing clinically proven radiation protection during sending and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all of your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information or contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And let them know you heard about it on the Back Table podcast. So I actually wore my uh, no-brainer radiation protection cap today. Uh, Luke, do you guys use any anything like RadPad or anything else special for radiation protection at UVA? Well, yeah, we're um, – I guess we, you could say we're kind of old school at uh, UVA. We uh, have been slow to adopt a lot of radiation protection devices. But that being said, uh, lately we have been uh, incorporating uh, floating – uh, more floating shields and bringing in some uh, down table drapes. Um, we have had a rad pad on the shelves before and have used it. It's a great product. Um, and it, uh, they definitely make it a little bit easier to get um, some good radiation protection in cases and something we need to incorporate more of. Absolutely. And, and, you know, even some of the guys are even using uh, lead aprons, I'm told. Yeah, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, moving on to our topic, uh, tonight we're talking BRTO, uh, and I mean, BRTO to include, you know, Carto, Parto and, and all the other Artos. Um, now Luke, you're already, you know, I don't know if I want to say is world famous for your BRTO music video on YouTube. Um, <laughs> it's got a whopping 23 views. Oh, uh, you're wrong. Which are for my wrong. mother. <laughs> when was the last time, when was the last time you checked my friend? Because oh, I, I looked at it tonight ago. and, uh, you're over a thousand. No, oh. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure you get some kind of plaque or something in the mail for that. But can you tell me how that masterpiece came about? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, this was when uh, Sahar uh, Sahar Sabri was, yeah. uh, was with us, and and he, um, 
I don't know if you know Saher very well, but he's not a, a, a super um, facile with technology. And uh, I had recently gotten a GoPro for Christmas. So uh, there you go. That that ended up in that uh, BRTO video. He <laughs> said, uh, dude, can you uh, make me a, a music video? <laughs> I need to put it in the conference. And so I he's... made that music video and uh, then put it on uh, YouTube after it was uh, posted at the conference. So He's yeah. pretty facile at, at this stuff, like BRTO. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely told. that um, and that's i was gonna ask you am i like second string for this did you already ask him and he was no, busy we, we didn't ask him uh he uh <laughs> he and dr matsumoto were my um my testers for boards this year and so oh, i didn't goodness. know it could have been a conflict of interest you know i mean <laughs> I, but you know of course uva is obviously one of the premier institutions for managing portal hypertension and its variants um can you tell us a little about what brto practice looks like at uva uh, yeah, sure. So we we are a pretty high volume portal hypertension uh, practice. We are a, a liver transplant center, a fairly uh, busy liver transplant center, and with that comes a lot of uh, patients uh, with some severe portal hypertension and its uh, sequela. Um, most, I would say, the vast majority of our complex portal hypertension cases get discussed on the uh, back end of our tumor board. So our HC okay. tumor board uh, meets weekly. And then uh, at the end of it, we'll per, uh, talk about all our vascular cases. Um, we'll talk about different options for treating, whether that's uh, TIPS-BATO, a BRTO, or some other variant. Got it. Um, well, so addressing this, I mean, our audience is is pretty varied in terms of career status, and, and a lot of our listeners are trainees. So I thought we'd just start by hitting the basics, um, beginning just with the indications you're you're typically using for treatment of just a routine BRTO, you know, again, you know, BATO, CARTO, um, et cetera. Yeah, so uh, routine indications when you're talking about a classic BRTO are going to be uh, gastric varices um, that uh, uh, are going to have um, high likelihood of bleeding or have uh, recently bled. Um, gastric varices are uh, are poorly controlled um, or not very well controlled um, through a endoluminal approach. And um, so in those settings, BRTO can be uh, uh, very advantageous for controlling bleeding from gastric varices. Um, part of uh, having a successful uh, BRTO is having a uh, uh, gastrorenal shunt and so you have to have an identifiable gastrorenal shunt on cross-sectional imaging in, sure. in order to proceed with a BRTO. Uh, so, Luke, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we addressed tips and, you know, primarily talking about esophageal varices. From an anatomic and physiologic standpoint, why isn't tips enough for all varices? Um, well, because uh, uh, tips is, is for gastric varices. And I, I think this is a, um, you know, this is a pretty controversial topic within right, portal hypertension management, whether or not you're going to have... Um, adequate control of gastric variceal bleeding from simple portal decompression uh, versus uh, needing to have a sclerosis or um, having um, uh, embolization to those uh, gastric varices. That being said, um, uh, frequently the amount of decrease in, um, in portal pressure that you're going to achieve from a TIPS within the uh, portal system um, is not going to be always adequately translate into the gastric varices and the amount of uh, uh, pressure that you will have in the gastric varices are still going to be high enough uh, for them to bleed. They bleed at a uh, uh, lower pressure than do esophageal varices. And if you don't uh, drop them, drop the absolute portal pressure low enough, you still have a very high risk of bleeding from those gastric varices. Okay. 
Um, so just in general, again, you know, for the trainees listening, like when is BRTO a better option than tips and, and why? Um, so BRT, there are many instances in which, uh, or many, cl- many clinical scenarios in which a BRTO is going to be a, a better option for tips. Um, there are, um, for trainees, there are several good, um, uh, options available for, for further reading on this. Um, and music videos. And music videos. Uh, but one of the, uh, I'm a big fan of flowcharts. Uh, I'll admit it. Um, I am, it makes, uh, it allows my brain to shut off and allows you to kind of work through a problem and allows you to uh, take that problem and put it onto paper and allow you to uh, evaluate all the clinical scenarios that can lead you to that decision-making process. Um, so actually uh, uh, with uh, Saher, we had a paper in the, um, Slightly obscure from an interventional radiologist, but more uh, uh, popular for the uh, uh, endoscopist. There's techniques in gastrointestinal endoscopy, and we had a uh, we put a flowchart in there. And I think it's a relatively good um, um, resource for kind of deciding uh, when you're going to use a BRTO versus TIPS. And so, um, lots of those are if a um, if a patient doesn't have EVs or esophageal varices. Right. If a patient doesn't have ascites or hydrothorax um, and has a um, an amenable shunt, those are patients that are going to be um, very good candidates for a BRTO. Um, it's almost easier to talk about patients that aren't good candidates for BRTO. So if they do have um, esophageal varices and esophageal varices that may be at risk for bleeding or have a recent stigmata of bleeding or have ascites or hydrothorax, those patients are um, better uh, suited for um, uh, tips uh, with uh, either a, a BATO, a BATO, or mm-hmm. uh, or sclerosis of those uh, gastric varices. So uh, that article that that you mentioned is uh, extremely useful. I think there was also another one um, from the folks at UVA. There's either in techniques or seminars. It was really long, but it had a ton of those flow charts. You, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that was uh, one that um, uh, that was from. Techniques in vascular interventional radiology. Yeah. I think that was from 2013. I, I think that, you know, both of those are really good for, you know, especially for me is, uh, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, more of the complex patients who have issues that would you know, theoretically be treated with either TIPS or BRTO. Uh, and that's really useful for me. And I think when we, uh, you know, tweet out this podcast link, we, you know, if, if you guys think it would be useful, we can also, you know, tweet out the links to those articles. Because I think, you know, for pretty much anybody, I mean, it's a very good review. I'm with you. I like the flow charts. Um, yeah, and, it's not, um, and, and, and just to go off on a side, um, the, uh, those flow charts aren't meant to be absolute where it's dogmatic sure. that you have to follow these, these algorithmic rules. But as, um, and given that a lot of the people that listen to these podcasts are, are trainees, my uh, own two cents on flow charts are that it's very important for you to have a decision-making process for how you're going to approach different clinical scenarios um, and uh, have that, uh, algorithm worked out in your head. And this goes not just for TIPS and BRTO and, and BATO, but also for PAD, for uh, for um, uh, pulmonary emboli, and your, uh, whether you're going to use lysis or mechanical uh, embolectomy. Your referring colleagues, um, your uh, partners uh, will have a lot more respect for you if they know um, that you have a decision-making process for uh, how you approach different types of cases and what you're going to do for each of those uh, different types of cases and can uh, and can coherently argue why you're choosing one um, 
uh, therapeutic technique over another. I think that's extremely important for young trainees to try and grapple with. Um, the, uh, the procedures that we do, while they can be technically demanding, that's not the hardest part of, of fellowship or, or training is uh, learning what to do with your hands. Uh, the hardest part is learning the decision-making process. And the, um, the earlier you can uh, figure out the decision-making process for yourself and come up with your own uh, approach to problems, uh, the better off you'll be long-term. I couldn't agree more. And that has been a lot of what my first two years out of training have been. Um, in order to help our listeners improve that decision-making process in terms of, of bleeding varices, can you briefly touch on some of the other considerations that you brought up, like ascites and encephalopathy and effects on portal hypertension in order to distinguish you know, BRTO from TIPS? Yeah. So, I mean, um, if you if you think about it, uh, when a uh, patient has a, um, a gastrorenal shunt and they are decompressing their portal system through that shunt and decompressing it through those gastric varices, um, if you go and shut that shunt down so that it stops bleeding, you are um, uh, closing off the relief valve for that portal vein. Um, so any sequela from portal hypertension that that patient may have is going to be exacerbated post-BRTO. So if a patient has EVs, they're going to get way worse with BRTO. If a patient has uh, ascites or hydrothorax, that's going to get worse with BRTO. Um, and so any of those problems are uh, can be contraindications to uh, BRTO. And so I said can be intentionally because sometimes there are some uh, low-grade EVs that we will um, still go ahead and do a BRTO on, knowing that they will get worse eventually, but knowing that they have adequate follow-up. And that's where it come, becomes very important to uh, have a close relationship with, with your gastroenterologist so they can uh, follow these patients for worsening EVs and you can manage those um, uh, uh, proactively. Um, but uh, basically anything that is uh, a sequela of portal hypertension is going to get worse with the BRTO. Okay. Um, just as a, a final question uh, in this topic is, uh, you know, in general, what patients are going to be good candidates for, you know, TIPS plus BRTO or TIPS plus BATO? Um, yeah, so uh, patients with TIPS plus BATO are going to be patients that have, may have some of those sequelae of portal hypertension um, uh, on your workup. So a patient that has had ascites in the past, um, they, uh, or has had hydrothorax or does have some degree of low grade esophageal varices, um, they would be a good candidate for doing a TIPS plus BATO. Um, and if, uh, again, if you think about it, um, when you are doing a TIPS plus BATO, if you shut off a gastrorenal shunt, uh, that when it was dumping into the, uh, renal vein was about 10 millimeters, and you go and you place a tips that is about 10 millimeters, you've just done a one-for-one one trade. Uh, so you're shutting down one while um, uh, opening up another. Um, so you're those that patient's um, overall portal pressure should be relatively unchanged post-tips plus BATO. Um, and whereas if you had just done the uh, BRTO and not had a... Uh, a, a done the tips to relieve that portal hypertension, then those EVs and the ascites is going to get worse. Okay. 
Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I think that's a, a broad look at the indications, but uh, for what's left of the workup, but what's a must have for you in your evaluation, particularly looking at, you know, just a, a straight up like BRTO, you know, carto parto uh, without a tips. Um, yeah. So um, the, all the relevant labs are going to be important. Um, Mel, Child's Pew, those are going to be important labs to have knowing a patient's uh, total bilirubin. But I guess the absolute must have is going to be uh, good diagnostic imaging. We're all radiologists. We love uh, uh, having pictures, but the, um, the CT is going to be very, very important for defining that shunt, determining the size of that shunt and determining what your um, technical needs are going to be for doing that procedure. Got it. Um, so how do you use MELD and Child's Pew, um, you know, for BRTO, BRTO compared to a TIPS? Or do you have any cutoff or anything like that? I don't really have any uh, cutoff. I mean, I think that that's going to be on a um, case-by-case uh, sure. basis. Um, generally speaking, patients that have a worsened liver function will do better um, with BRTO as opposed to TIPS because you're, in essence, uh, improving the amount of portal blood flow that patient's going to be getting. So they actually will do a little bit better. Uh, that being said, you're always going to want to have that baseline so you know what their liver function is uh, pre-BRTO and post-BRTO. Okay. Um, and then when you're looking at the CT, I mean, do you try to classify the shunt? Do you use any of the classification systems like Kiosu or any of the other ones that you, you know, read about in the literature? No, I don't believe in those. No, I'm okay. just kidding. Yeah, we, um, we, don't, <laughs> we, we try, you try and classify them and you try and figure out what the, um, uh, what the drainage pattern is going to be on the CT, but that gets really challenging, right? Cause you got this sure. giant whopping nest of gastric pharisees that have all these vessels coursing through them. And sometimes frequently it can be very challenging to determine, um, what that venous drainage is, is really going to be. I mostly use it for, um, uh, determine if I can identify a the shunt and uh, determine the size of that shunt. So yeah. if I see a good gastrorenal shunt uh, that is, um, say, uh, 8 millimeters, 10 millimeters, I know that we're going to have a good balloon that's going to be able to occlude that. If I see something that's larger than that, that's going to be 14 plus, then I'm going to get a little bit worried about uh, being able to occlude that with a balloon, and I'm going to sure. start... Uh, other techniques for occluding that shunt. Likewise, if you see um, some other uh, venous drainage pattern uh, where you you see a uh, venous drainage into the IVC in addition to the gastrointestinal shunt, that's going to um, uh, uh, make you realize that you're going to have to also account for that and occlude that while doing your BRTO. So, I mean, are there any findings on CT, you know, for somebody who has isolated gastric varices uh, in terms of the shunt that really change your plan so much that you just can't, you can't do the procedures or anything you see on CT that is just a hard stop. Yeah. So, I mean, if, uh, if a patient doesn't have a, 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 a patent portal vein, they're not going to be a very good candidate for uh, doing a BRTO. Um, uh, so if they have a cavernous transformation, they're going to be a challenging patient. They're not going to be a, a good candidate for that. Um, if they don't have a good gastrointestinal shunt, they're not going to be a good candidate for BRTO. So I guess, um, I did say the most important thing was a shunt, but in going through a stepwise approach, when I look at the CT, I'm going to determine if they have a patent portal vein. If they don't have a patent portal vein, then I'm going to start uh, thinking about tips 
um, with an alternative access, like uh, doing a dips and or doing a uh, splenic access right. and trying to reanalyze that occluded portal vein. If all of those fail, then you can start talking about splenic embolization and decreasing overall splenic vein flow that might be feeding those gastric varices through the short gastrics. Um, if, next step, if they do have a patent portal vein, uh, then I use that cross-sectional imaging, see if we have any EVs, see if we have any ascites, any hydrothorax. Um, as long as we don't have any of those, then uh, look on uh, look to the shunt and see if we do have an shunt amenable to BRTO. Um, if all of those um, are um, satisfactory, then we can move on to doing a BRTO or a TIPS plus sclerosis uh, after uh, talking with our um, hepatologists and, and with our referring docs. Okay. Um, so let's move on to some of the technical elements. Uh, and to begin, you know, for... A BRTO without tips, do you do these with moderate sedation or general anesthesia? I do moderate sedation for a for a BRTO. Got it. Um, and so how do you decide between internal jugular, femoral, or other access? Yeah, so I almost always, um, I would say 90 plus percent of the time I use a femoral access for doing these. However, um, I uh, there are, are people at my institution that, um, that use IJ access and swear by it. Um, and some people that use, um, they vary it depending on how the, uh, how the renal vein looks on CT. Um, I don't think I'm, I, I am neither smart nor talented enough to determine on the basis <laughs> of CT, what is going to be the appropriate approach for getting into that shunt. I will say that some people, you know, if it's a more angulated uh, renal vein or has a more upward angulation, right. people think, oh, I can drop into it a little bit easier. And then especially if I use a, something like a bulk and sheath, I can pop into that um, and to really get good access from an IJ approach. And I, I suppose that's reasonable. But I think given the sheath options that we have available now, there is um, um, there are, are very, very few shunts that we should be able to catheterize from a femoral vein approach. So the only trouble I've ever had, uh, you know, with IJ versus femoral is, is really just, you know, that long sheath getting over the hump. What sheath do you use from femoral, especially with a, you know, more up sloping angle? Yeah. So I've um, gone to using um, a lot of steerable sheaths in in the BRTO setting. So I'll use the Oscor um, or the Destino twist sheath, um, which I think is a good option that comes in, um, uh, 8.5, 7, and 6.5 uh, French sizes. Um, it uh, really helps you get a lot of stability into that uh, renal vein, and um, you can use it coaxially with another sheath to then um, uh, get into that shunt. Um, it can provide a lot of support for uh, getting around that curve. Got it. And what's your go-to catheter for getting into the shunt? So I'll usually use the Destino, and then um, you start with an MPA. If that doesn't work, then I'll go to a C2. Okay. Um, so if you could just talk a little bit about optimizing imaging in the shunt, because sometimes you, you just get these, it's like a fire hose, uh, just coming down there and it's, it can be kind of hard to image it. How do you image your shunt, uh, and, and kind of planar treatment from there? Yeah. So, um, when you, after you, after I have access, uh, with a, uh, either a four or five French catheter into that shunt, um, I will then put a, a rosin wire through. 
Um, then I'll advance my catheter as far as possible and then um, attempt to uh, advance my sheath as far as I can. Typically, this uh, requires me to take my catheter out, then put in the uh, inner of the sheath just to drive the sheath further up into the shunt. Uh, once I get that into the shunt, then I will do an injection. Now, sometimes you're able to see a, a, a good amount of the shunt. And you're able to see kind of where that um, shunt is communicating. You can see a large amount of the gastric varices. Many times you cannot because you're injecting into the outflow, right? So right. it can be really challenging to determine what you're looking at. Um, so in most cases, in order to she- see the uh, full extent of that of those gastric varices, you're going to need to occlude everything. Uh, so you'll need to put up your occlusion balloon to uh, uh, be able to get uh, to fully define uh, that gastric varics. So what do you look for when you do this uh, in terms of collaterals and shunts and what's going to change your treatment plan? Yeah, so um, I'm uh, I guess we could this is kind of getting into the BRTO versus CARTO versus PARTO uh, versus ARTO NOS um, and and uh, kind of how we go about uh, uh optimizing both what we're, how we're going to treat these and, and 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 what we're going to use to sclerose them so me personally um i am not uh i haven't fully jumped onto the the parto um bandwagon and so for the trainees parto is a plug assisted retrograde transvenous obliteration and that typically uses um gel foam for that and so it involves placing a um a, catheter beyond uh in further into the gastric varus or further into that shunt uh, then dropping a amplatz or vascular plug within the uh, shunt itself and then injecting gel foam slurry through that catheter to uh, obliterate the entirety of the varics and there's been um uh, very good um, retrospective reviews on um, uh, on experience with partos with very good results and very good gastric vein obliteration or, or excuse me uh, gastric varics obliteration um, and I can't argue with the results. The reason I I don't like parto is as much for me personally is that it sometimes it's it's harder for me to define the endpoint of embolization. And I don't know if, if, if you experience this, um, but it's, uh, it's hard for me to say, okay, now I can stop. Now I know that I've occluded the entirety of the varics, or now I know that everything's shut down. Um, and that's because for, for two reasons, one, um, it's hard to get the, uh, the gel foam slurry to propagate forward and, and hard to main, uh, keep that contrast within your gel foam slurry throughout the entirety of the varics. Um, so I always find uh, that I'll be injecting and the uh, gel foam gets um, starts sitting on my plug with the contrast freely leaking through, um, which uh, I don't know if you've do many uh partos um but it's uh it's it's nerve-wracking to see that amount of contrast flowing through into the renal vein and just hope that it's that your plug is filtering out all that that gel foam um and so it's hard to to know exactly where your embolic endpoint is i think um, my issue with it uh in the ones that i've done is the gel foam versus uh you know the the foam because I, I can't really see what i'm what i'm looking at when i do it and it's kind of hard yeah, embolization. Right. Yeah, we're radiologists. We love looking at pictures, and uh, and I feel like with the with the gel foam, I don't know where it's going. You know, I and I think the it almost involves a degree of of faith that you know that you're occluding all those uh, venous outflows. Like if you've got a phrenic, you can. That's the the benefit of doing parto is that you don't have to go up there and occlude every tiny little phrenic vein um, because you know you're just going to plug it up with those big. Uh, uh, 
piles of gel foam. Um, but the negative of it is that it's you have to almost have faith that you're just going to be including the gastric pharynx and you right. end up to get a good result. Where uh, I've run into stuff, I mean, has been the time. I mean, because I usually approach these as like a routine, like a real, like a BRTO. But, uh, you know, the, the place I do most of mine, we only have you know, balloons, occlusion balloons, they go up to a certain size. And so even, you know, right where the shunt arises, sometimes I'll find that I don't have a balloon that I'm comfortable enough putting in the foam, you know, without being yeah. certain that it's not just leaking around it. And that's all yeah, that's exactly kind of modified, you know, put the microcatheter up and coil around it, but still use foam. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I, I, why I like looking at the CT so much and, and measuring the size of that shunt. Cause if you measure the size of that shunt and you're, your where your balloon looks like it's going to sit is going to be 16. There's, I mean, I don't have a, I'm like you, I don't ever really have a balloon that I feel comfortable uh, putting up in that spot and then injecting through it. So you're going to have to do a parto because that's the only equipment that you have that's going to occlude that. Um, so I generally rely on the shunt to help me decide if I'm going to go parto versus BRTO or, or a variant of BRTO. So, you know, in an ideal scenario, when you're doing like a BRTO and you're using the foam and you, you know, you've got, uh, a good kind of where you can cinch down that balloon. Uh, you know, what's your your solution that you make for your your sclerosant? Yeah, so I do the um, the traditional three two one, which is yeah. uh, three of air, uh, two of the STS, and uh, one of the of lapiedol, and um, and uh, uh, my embolization and I usually mix up about uh, I think we start with 20 cc's of the foam solution um, and my embolization endpoint um, is uh, if you while you're injecting the foam sclerosant um, I uh, you will see the foam sclerosant go up to the top of the varix and then start making its way down um, and you want to I try and continue injecting uh, sclerosant until I see it go uh, halfway in between the apex of that gastric varix and the level of the renal vein. And once you've gotten to that kind of halfway point, that's when I stop. That's really useful. Um, okay. I actually haven't heard that before. You know, I hear a different answer from everybody when they tell me their endpoint. Um, do you do cone beam CT or anything else at the end to take a look at the varices? I do cone beam CT, but it's mostly just because we have a cone beam CT and it's yeah. uh, they're really pretty pictures and it makes me feel better about myself. Cause, um, I don't, I've never done a cone beam CT and been like, Oh yeah, I should keep going. Um, it's mostly, <laughs> like, Oh yeah, that sure is pretty. Look at all that stuff. And, I know. Yeah. Um, it does make me feel better, but I actually don't think I've had one where I looked at the cone beam CT and it's like, yeah, we got to get this. We got to get this going again. Give me some more foam. Yeah, no, I've never. I, yeah, I'm usually done by that point. <laughs> Physically and emotionally spent. And uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and then nervous as I deflate the balloon, if if that's what I'm doing. So, do you? How do you manage it after? I mean, do you do you leave? Yeah, you deflate. I, leave, the I like to leave coils behind. So um, I try. I can count on one hand the number of times I've, I've left a balloon up overnight and then deflated it the next day. And that's how we used to do it for forever. Uh, but then we, um, we changed and we've been trying to coil our way out a lot more than, than leaving the balloon up. I think that just makes it easier for kind of logistical reasons. And it obviously decreases your risk of a uh, uh, balloon rupture and, and makes it a little bit easier to manage overnight. Um, so uh, there are um, some, um, good options for, uh, uh, you know, the mercy catheter. Do you have the mercy catheter? That no, I don't know that one. 
So the Mercy is a, I believe it's eight French and it's a 10 millimeter balloon. And so in shunts that are a little bit smaller, that's a very good option because it's an eight French guide calf with a balloon on it. Um, so then you can put through that uh, balloon yeah. calf anything that'll fit through an eight French. And so uh, you can put a five French catheter um, through that. Um, and when you're done injecting your sclerosin, you can uh, coil with a 035 coil. Yeah, a bunch of 035 coils. Are just yeah, great. and so that makes it a little bit faster. Yeah. Um, if if not, then you can always use a, a larger uh, micro coils and um, for uh, coiling your way out. But I, th- I think that makes the um, procedure a lot faster and, and makes it um, somewhat safer uh, because you don't have to worry about the risk of that balloon rupture. I certainly sleep better, uh, and then <laughs> I, love, I love not bringing them back down to look at that again because it's you know as soon as I'm done with those. Uh, I just kind of want to wash my hands for a few minutes of it and then then go see them after. But, uh, <laughs> you decompress for a little bit. Yeah. Decompress while they decompress. No. Uh, oh, I see what you did there. That was yeah. Nice. <laughs> I didn't even do that on purpose. Uh, <laughs> uh, so what about follow-up, Luke? You know, what do you do after this? Um, so I usually bring them back in four weeks um, and uh, uh, get a, a CT and 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 check and see that that uh, that renal vein is uh, still open, that all the gastric varices are still occluded. Um, we also have, uh, as I mentioned before, we have a very uh, close relationship with our uh, gastroenterologists and our hepatologists. So uh, we make sure that they're um, uh, adequately surveilled for um, for esophageal varices and for um, development of those esophageal varices. Uh, but I typically follow my usual schedule is um, uh, four, right? One, two, six, and 12 is when I'll follow them up. Okay. Um, yeah, actually, I didn't ask this because, you know, for me, uh, I think almost every single one of these I've ever done has been on an inpatient. Do you have any, any outpatients that you're treating? Yeah, we actually, we actually do. I actually just... Uh, not this last Friday, but the Friday before during the vascular component of our tumor board had a patient that was seen in clinic by one of our hepatologists and uh, uh, had a scope and showed some grade two EVs, and uh, but with some uh, GVs that had uh, bled and then been uh, managed medically, um, but still had some um, uh, concerning uh, findings on endoscopy. Um, and he wanted them managed with a BRTO. So we signed him up for a BRTO and he'll probably be coming, I don't know, next two to three weeks. It's really interesting. Um, you know, it's kind of like a primary prevention thing because, I mean, don't these theoretically bleed at lower pressure gradients? Yes. Yeah, they do. And so um, we've been uh, – we at UVA have been fairly aggressive about uh, uh, managing um, gastric varices and making sure that uh, uh, patients are – they're um, – uh, have a lot of prophylaxis for a decreased risk of bleeding from gastric varices. Cause as I'm sure you well know, and most of our listeners know when gastric varices uh, start bleeding, it's, it, it's a, a true, true emergency and it can right. become a very um, a dire very quickly. Um, and uh, many patients don't make it to the hospital. So, so with your outpatients, do you send them home same day or keep them overnight? Uh, we keep them overnight. Um, I think it's uh, good to uh, make sure that they're stu- still doing well um, uh, the next day, that they haven't had any, um, uh, especially if we've had a balloon up overnight. Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, I guess you could send them home with, with a sheath and then come back the next day and deflate the balloon. I'm just kidding. We wouldn't do that. But, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, it, even if you're going to coil your way out, you wouldn't leave anything behind. I would still want to admit a patient overnight. You want to make sure that they're... You 
their liver's functioning okay, that they're uh, still doing fine the next day. They don't have any uh, significant signs of uh, of HE, that they're um, not having any rapid worsening uh, uh, hepatic hydrothorax or uh, or ascites, or they don't have any acute uh, EV bleeds. Um, so it's a good thing to manage overnight. And then do you do anything, you know, for patients who do have esophageal varices or other evidence of portal hypertension, do you do anything different to monitor their portal hypertension? You mean during the case, during the BRT? No, afterward, you know, I mean, because theoretically, I mean, the, the uh, you know, portal hypertension is going to increase after BRTO. Uh, yeah. Do you have to do anything for surveillance? Um, no, we'll have, um, we'll, you know, we work with our gastroenterologists so that they are surveilled and then we do um, Got uh, endoscopy and, and you know, uh, check their EVs and make sure that they're not getting worse acutely. But if someone did have known EVs um, that uh, uh, were concerning and we were kind of pushing the envelope of, of doing BRTO, um, we would probably be more aggressive about getting them in earlier for a surveillance endoscopy to make sure that those EVs did not get acutely worse. Got it. Well, I just have one final question, Luke, Uh, you know, especially from some of your more challenging cases, uh, you know, do you have any particular pitfalls or or pearls that, you know, you're not going to find in these review articles that you've learned from some of these more challenging cases? Oh, I know that's a tough one. That's a, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, we, uh, we've tried to make the review articles that we've been involved in in the, in the chapters as, as detailed as possible, but, um, I'm sure there are some, uh, pearls. Um, I think the, um, uh, I don't think I have any kind of BRTO specific pearls for, um, things you want to look out for or things you want to, um, uh, be cognizant of, but I would have some general pearls on, on, BRTO and and portal hypertension cases is is the importance of a, a multidisciplinary uh, team um, when it comes to your portal hypertension practice. Having okay. uh, close working relationships with your uh, gastroenterologists, your transplant surgeons. Um, uh, uh, is extremely important um, when you're making a decision on whether or not to uh, go forward with BRTO or TIPS, making sure that um, you've loaded the boat. You know, um, are you familiar with that expression, loading the boat? I have. I mean, I am. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we always are very, very big EVA about loading the boat and making sure everyone's on the same page. And I think it goes a long way because then everyone's um, part of that decision-making process for the patient and everyone's kind of invested in the, in the therapy that you're, that you're going to be providing. Um, so, uh, not only loading the boat pre-procedure, but if there's, um, if you have a question during the procedure, it's also important to take a step back, um, uh, take your gloves off, take your gown off, look at the images that you have, get more images if you need it, and know exactly what the anatomy is before moving forward with the therapy. Um, and it sounds um, patronizing, and I don't, uh, and I never mean it to be, but one of the things I always try and harp on, um, on our fellows is to diagnose and then treat. Um, so frequently we, especially as interventional radiologists are always uh, gung ho to start treatment, put a stent down, balloon, embolize, do something. We're always, uh, uh, itching to get that done. Uh, but too frequently we don't have the proper imaging to define what exactly that pathology is. And we haven't properly, um, uh, evaluated that prior to deciding on a therapy. Um, so determining exactly what your, um, your venous outflow is uh, for a BRTO, exactly where the gastric varices are, what is the afferent supply. Uh, those are all very important things that need to be known before deciding on a therapy. I think that's fantastic advice. 
Um, Lucas, it's like it's like a broken clock. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Luke, is there anything else that I didn't cover that you think we need to address? No, man. I think you uh, I think you covered everything. I think there was a very good uh, uh, discussion about uh, BRTO. I, I think that it's you know one of those topics that um, is uh, very difficult to encapsulate either in a podcast or in a review article because it can the patients are so heterogeneous um, and um, and they uh, uh, they present in different ways with different comorbidities and different. Um, sequela of their portal hypertension, and that makes each treatment have to be tailored to that individual patient. So it's 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 a tough topic to cover. But I, I think what uh, uh, I think we I, we did a good enough for government work type of job on that one. I think fantastic. But you know, <laughs> either one. Well, look, you know, uh, I'm really grateful for your time and expertise. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for listening. Um, you know, you can find any of our previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, the Backtable app, or Spotify. And thanks again for our sponsor, RadPad. Reach out to them at info at radpad.com for free radiation evaluation and no-brainer radiation protection cap. Thanks again. Bye.